0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app.
1: All right, talking about the United States running up the score against Thailand in the Women's World Cup, 13 nothing. You know, here's the thing. I'm not really as concerned about that part of it. I mean, you had a differential rule in the round robin that the first rounds of the World Cup. So what if your opponent in the same bracket there scores 14 goals? So, you know, this could be important. And down the line so sure you get you've got to score a lot of goals that's part of the game but the celebrations come on these were ridiculous i mean these girls are running all over the field like they just won the whole thing they just routed some outclass team first time they're in the world cup so this is getting a lot of attention today so here's the hot question of the day you heard canadian soccer player kaylin kyle call it disgusting what do you think did the, the disgusting celebrations by team usa at the world cup After their thirteen other win over Thailand, did that bother you? Would you say yes? That is totally inappropriate, or would you say no? If they're just celebrating, that's okay. At CKNW on Twitter, that's where you will find the hot question of the day, and you can vote there. Please at CKNW on Twitter. Please follow me while you are there at Mike Smith News on Twitter. S M Y T H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Call me on the Buzz line about this or anything else you hear on the show, 604-331-Buzz, 604-331-2899. Let's talk now about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's big announcement this week on banning single-use plastic items like food containers. How is this going to affect businesses that use plastic items? There are a lot of unanswered questions here about this plan, but many businesses already wondering where this is going, and how it will affect them. Let's talk to one impacted businessman now, Andrew Wall. He is the owner of the Bubble Tea Place in Victoria. Andrew, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Okay, Andrew, tell me a little bit about your tea shop there. You guys use a lot of plastic items there, right? We sure
2: do. Um, I have uh, probably maybe 3% of my customers bring reusable uh, vessels, uh, so yeah ninety five to ninety seven percent is uh single use
1: right and i I believe like a a bubble tea would be served in a plastic cup with a plastic lid and a plastic straw right
2: exactly exactly, and I probably we're looking at between seventy and eighty thousand units a year
1: Wow, okay, what did you think of the prime minister's announcement this week on banning banning these items? Well,
2: I think it's really easy for a politician to get on the bandwagon. Uh, it's the easiest thing to, to be seen to be doing something when you're actually doing nothing. Uh, he's creating a lot of problems and uh, not offering a lot of solutions. It's going to be up to a free enterprise to come up with the solutions.
1: What would be the impact on your business there if, if he bans all these items, which are basically kind of the bread and butter of your business there? What, if he bans those within two years, like they're talking, what would that do to your tea shop?
2: Oh, I'm going to be scrambling to, uh, to re-figure out my business model. I, I don't know how that's going to work. I, I physically cannot serve as many people as I do uh, uh, and wash every dish. <laughs> it's just it's not feasible, so we have to come up with uh we have to retrain the public first of all, you know ideally, you know in a perfect world, I want to save the environment as well i I hate to see plastic floating around in the ocean right. um, uh, but uh, we'd have to have everybody walking around with a, a little tool kit with uh you know a knife, a fork, a cup, a plate, you know a straw that's all reusable and i don't see people being that organized or dedicated there's a lot of you know instant gratification in this world people just don't plan ahead like that
1: could you replace the plastic items in your store the cups the lids the straws with cardboard items or some other kind of biodegradable containers or items well, there are some options. Uh for straws, for
2: example, they're they're making straws out of uh the fibers from sugar cane. That's one good option I'm looking at. Of course the price is, you know, triple or quadruple. Right. Uh which is gonna add up. We're going into an inflationary cycle here it seems. Uh but that's the cost of, of doing business, that's what I'm gonna have to do. Um as far as the cups, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna move towards my cups actually are, in a way, they are reusable. I went with a firm plastic, but it's going to be up to the customer to bring it back. That's the same story over and over again. It's, it's the public, right? They, first of all, they have to recycle and they have to reuse. It's, it's not about, uh, the retailer. It's, you know, I've recycled for 20 years since I started this business. I realized I was getting into a plastic, uh, a heavy-use plastic industry, and I wanted to, you know, have as little impact as possible. So I don't even provide a trash can in the store. I provide a tray, and I encourage people to recycle, and I recycle everything I can get my hands on.
1: What, what do you figure is the recycling rate among your customers there with in your store?
2: Uh, you know, that's really hard to say. I think we're. I'm in a tourist area, so I think yeah. tourists... Uh, are uh, coming from places where the recycling is not as much of a priority. I, yeah. think, I think we're pretty good locally. Our locals are good. Uh, they recycle lots of my good regular customers. will bring back cups and uh, reuse them. Um, I, I challenge our local government, instead of simply you know, banning something, to come up with a solution. I think an easy answer might be putting recycle bins beside our garbage bins on the street. We've got public uh, garbage yeah. right here in Chinatown, in Victoria. Uh, why not put a recycle right next to it and people can dispose of their waste responsibly?
1: Speaking to Andrew Wall, he's the owner of the Bubble Tea Place in Victoria. Andrew, you mentioned the cost. I mean, there's always a cost to these items. It's a great idea. Let's replace plastics, but plastics are cheap. And if you're going mm-hmm. to replace them with something more more expensive, what would that do to your your business model if if you've got to suddenly replace all the your raw materials in your business with a more expensive item?
2: Well, it's it could price me out of the market. It, it you know I'm I try and keep my costs down as much as I can. I know that my product is not a necessity; it's a luxury. Um, so I try and keep it reasonable. Uh, and if it gets too high, people are just going to have to not come. If they have to. To buy a reusable item to to have a drink, uh, those spontaneous tourists are not going to buy one. You know they're they're <laughs> they're going to say, "Hey, I have to spend fifteen, ten or fifteen dollars uh, to have a drink." You know, forget it, and it's not going to happen. You know, so yeah. uh, I'm not sure at this point what the solution is. I'm I'm hoping uh, I'm going to come up with one. Um,
1: you want, yeah. what kind of what question what questions you want answered here because it seems to me there's a lot of unanswered questions with this announcement this week from the Prime Minister I mean we, we don't know exactly why to, what items will be banned when they will be banned what is supposed to replace these items I mean when you heard this announcement I mean what what sort of the questions are going through your mind that you, you want answers to right now
2: uh, w- one main question coming up in my mind is that uh, all the recycling I've been doing for 20 years, is that all for naught? You know, is the plastic that I am responsibly recycling going into the ocean somehow? You know, where is all this plastic coming coming from? Uh, you know, it's certainly not from me. Uh, you know, we have a system, a landfill system, and a recycling system. Does it not work? You know, is is Canada really is Victoria responsible for? for uh, all this plastic in the ocean. You know, I've I've traveled around the world quite a bit, and there are definitely countries that are, you know, responsible, more responsible for this, and uh, they have no recycling program. and I, I don't understand uh, why you would put a blanket ban on something in a country that is trying to be responsible.
1: All right, Andrew, thanks for sharing your thoughts on it today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. All right, that was Andrew Wall. He's the owner of the Bubble Tea Place in Victoria, saying that Trudeau's ban on disposable plastic items could price him right out of business. What do you think about what he said there? I mean, do you got any sympathy for him at all? Phone me on the Buzz line and and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899 is the plan for the city of surrey to get rid of the rcmp and move to a local municipal police force as promised by surrey mayor doug mccallum last week you had that big report that came out from the city on how they're going to pull this off that report is now in the hands of the provincial government this thing is not going to happen unless the province says it's okay solicitor general mike farnworth said the other day don't expect some sort of snap decision here he's going to take his time how much time we don't know but this is a major major transition for the city of surrey getting rid of the rcmp and going to a brand new police force global news senior reporter janet brown has been doing the deep dive on this story for days i'm pleased to welcome her back hi janet
3: Good morning, Mike. And you're right, Mike Farnworth has said all along he's not going to be rushed in making this decision. He's going to be involving his staff, officials within his ministry. He's going to take his time, make the right decision, etc. But if you dive deep into this policing report sent from the city of Surrey to the province, it says, quote, the chief constable should be hired between 19 to 21 months prior to the planned go live date of the Surrey PD, which is April 1st, 2021. And it says, for example, in brackets, July to September of this year. So ideally, they are looking to have that new chief constable in place next month. So (laughs) I would think that there is a certain degree of pressure on the Solicitor General to make up his mind and make this decision so that if it is approved, that they can start rolling on this. But, you know, that's that's just a couple of weeks from now, Mike, yeah. as you know. And uh, the big question is, who will be the new chief? Are lots of people putting in their applications, calling the city, saying, hey, put my name on the list? <laughs> uh, we know that uh, the former chief in Delta, Delta Police, Jim Sessford, has said uh, for the last couple of weeks that he definitely w- would be interested in the job. Oh. Um I'm not going to name names, but I've heard several other names, uh, people in the metro Vancouver area who would be interested in the job.
1: Go ahead and name some names, Janet. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
3: I don't think I should right now without okay. checking right. with them first. But, you know, there's lots of rumors out there, of course, right, um, yeah. that, that you're hearing as I talk to people at the city, as I talk to people at the RCMP, lots of names are coming up. So it appears that a lot of people, well, several anyways, um, are interested in the top job with the Surrey PD if it is approved. Um, and I'm also hearing, uh, this is just a rumor, but, you know, I mean, this this decision by Mr. Farnworth, I don't think is going to drag on for months and months, obviously. I'm hearing he could make up his mind by the end of this month, and that makes sense when you look at this report, how they say they would like a new chief constable in place by July, um, because the report says this new chief constable will lead the development of the Surrey PD, and then as soon as he's in place, it will be his job to hire three deputy chief constables, and that's uh, just the way the Vancouver Police Department is also structured and the VPD also had a hand in writing this report that went to the province as well Mike so very curious and you know the question too where does that leave the current Surrey RCMP officer in charge Dwayne McDonald yeah. is he is is he still on the job until this whole transition takes place or is he out the door so that's going to be interesting to see what happens in terms of him as well
1: Dwayne McDonald I think has been pretty classy through this whole thing i mean he's certainly defended the rcmp he's defended his people quite vigorously at times but i think overall he's been he's been pretty classy the way he's handled this i mean this has got to be pretty tough for him and also for rcmp officers and i imagine that maybe among some mounties there's been a bit of a morale hit when you've got the mayor the city saying they basically want to get rid of this force and he's He's doing photo ops with a with a local municipal police car before the before the police force is even formed. I mean, you know that's got to be tough to take for the the current chief and, and his people. But I think he's been he's been pretty cool about it. The the other thing I wonder about with the the looming decision by the province, Janet, whether to support this or not, Mike Farnworth, and also I think Premier John Horgan. I, I don't think they're exactly members of the uh, John McCall uh, John McCallum fan club. And if you sort of read between the lines of their public comments on this, they don't really seem that thrilled or enthusiastic about the whole idea. But I also think that there's a lot of pressure on them to approve it, because McCallum, this was a deliverable for McCallum. He promises during an election campaign. He won big in that election campaign. And I think that the province, in, in some ways, have got to approve it. You make several
3: good points there, Mike. First of all, uh, the classiness of Dwayne McDonald, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, you know, he has taken the high road in all of this, and he has talked about the morale of his members and how difficult it has been, and that's very understandable through all of this. Um, you know, his job is obviously, he, he, he won't be in his job for that much longer, and yet he is taking the high road. He continues uh, to meet on a regular basis with Mayor Doug McCallum, and he has not been critical of this process. Uh, last week, um, Kurt Griffiths, who also helped to uh, write this report on the transitioning of the police department, was on with Linda Steele on her program in the afternoon. And uh, Dwayne McDonald phoned up to um, respond to what he had to say. You, If you listen to what he had to say, uh, he had clear anger in his voice and yeah. and that's also very understandable it's a difficult time for him and and the members of the surrey rcmp in terms of the premier mike farnworth making a decision which side they come down on all of this you know you and i have both talked to mike farnworth and the premier about this many many times over the last uh, weeks and months uh mr farnworth has always said though, so. you know this is a, Sur- a city of surrey decision and, um, you know, and and he's always said this is who the voters voted for. Mr. McCallum was very clear in what he represented in the election campaign and after he was elected. And he's and Mr. Farnworth has always said, as I say, this is what the voter this is who the voters voted for. And this is what Surrey appears to want. But you know, what's interesting in all of this, Mike, and I'm sure it's not lost in you either. The five Surrey MLAs are members of the NDP. Yeah, and yeah. in those writings, I'm hearing that a lot of people want this transition. Mm-hmm. So, if it is not approved, what happens to those Surrey MLAs? Do they yeah. get voted out next time? You know, so politics play into all of this as well. I dare say, I yeah. think they really do.
1: Yeah, for for sure, because I I think if they were to dare to say no to it, uh, it I think potentially and our hands Andrew Wilkinson, the BC Liberal leader. An issue in a, in a critical political battleground there in Surrey. Hey, real quick, Janet, in just a minute or so, we got left. I know you, you've been looking closely into this report. There's some interesting stuff in this report about messaging and sort of public relations strategies on this thing as it goes forward. What's that about?
3: Absolutely, that certainly caught my eye. It says, uh, "I'm just quoting right out of the report here, Mike." It says, "Another key consideration during the initial phase will be ensuring adequate expertise is in place for creating communication strategies with the public." Mm-hmm. It says, "The new communications manager will design messaging around the Surrey PD and establish communication plans." It says carefully crafted public messaging around the Surrey PD early during the transitional phase will contribute to making the Surrey PD's recruiting efforts successful and also building positive relationships with the community. I don't think that's really surprising, that paragraph. Obviously, they're going to make this uh, sound as as good as they can as if it is approved as they move from the RCMP to a PD force, but um, yeah, just some interesting comments. It's also interesting um, that this report was released in its entirety, Mike. Nothing yeah. was redacted, and I think a lot of people before it went out to the public last week thought there would be bits and pieces of it held back from the public, but there it is in its entirety, and they talk about the messaging and making it uh, seem presenting it in its best possible light. And and again, that just makes sense, I would think.
1: Janet, thanks for coming on with the update. Thank you, Mike. My pleasure. I appreciate that. Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter on the Surrey Policing Transition. Let's talk about those waivers that you sign when you go skiing or you go zip lining or you go skydiving, you do any kind of high-risk activity or extreme sport like that. You know they're going to ask you to sign one of these waivers that if you're injured or worse, it's not the uh, company's fault or the the ski hill's fault. I'll tell you. Uh, recently, did a little vacation with my family. Went down to Mexico. We had we had a lot of fun down there in uh, spring break. And one of the things we did one day is we went on one of these uh, zip line tours. It was my idea. Uh, we had a good time. We enjoyed it. Everything was fine. And later, though, my wife showed me an article that appeared in. I believe it was nature magazine about some of the catastrophic and terrible injuries and deaths that have occurred on zip lines uh, throughout the world and the poor regulation that happens uh, sometimes in, the, in a sport like that. And I'm kind of glad I didn't read that article before we did it. Cause I probably would have chickened out. Uh, I started wondering if it was a bright idea to, to do this or not. Of course you got to sign one of those waivers. You got to pretty much, sign your life away really that if you're injured or worse on on something like this it's it's not their fault is this fair should these waivers uh be allowed let's check in with kyla lee now she's a criminal defense lawyer with acumen law i'm very pleased to welcome her back hi kyla hi thank you for having me thanks for coming on do you you go do any of these extreme sports yourself like skiing or anything like that (laughs) no (laughs) you don't okay if you did would you sign one of these waivers i mean isn't that just part of doing one of these sports you sign these waivers
0: Well, essentially it is because you have no choice but to sign the waiver if you want to participate in the sport. You're not going to be allowed, you know, down the ski hill. You're not going to be allowed to go on the zip line or or do any of the extreme sporting activities unless you sign the waiver. So they've got you um, by essentially forcing you if you want to engage in the activity.
1: Okay, there's been some interesting cases in the news on this uh, topic, including uh, this week with um, there was an Australian man who had sued Grouse Mountain after he was involved in a crash there that left him. Uh, tragically paralyzed, and he had argued in court that uh, these, this liability waiver wasn't sufficient, that he wasn't sufficiently warned about the risk, but he lost in court. Did that surprise you?
0: It did surprise me. Um, these waivers are incredibly unfair, to the people who are signing them, they essentially exempt any company that's running one of these extreme sports businesses from any liability whatsoever, even if their employees are completely negligent. If you have, you know, a ski hill employee who directs you down the triple black diamond run when you're your first day skiing in your life and they go, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. They still are not liable for their negligence in that regard. As long sure, as something like know.
1: that wouldn't something like that is kind of probably not going to happen, though.
0: But it does happen. There was also a case not that long ago in B.C. Supreme Court where somebody was injured, I believe it was in a ziplining accident,
1: yeah. um,
0: and the court accepted that there was significant amount of negligence on the part of the employees who let people zip line while other people were already on the line, and they crashed into each other. And despite the fact that there was that negligence, nobody was able to recover any money for their damages because they had signed a waiver.
1: Okay, but when you do one of these extreme sports If you're going to go barreling down a mountain on a a skis or a snowboard, or you're going to do a zipline tour, or you're going to jump out of an airplane and for a skydiving adventure, are you not implicitly and obviously accepting the risk of doing that as dangerous activity, and you know up front that it's dangerous, and doesn't that make the waiver fair?
0: Anytime you're engaging in a dangerous activity, the courts do recognize that you accept that there's some level of risk associated with that. That's just common sense. But that really goes to how much money you're entitled to recover if you're you're injured. And remember that people are putting their trust in these companies to keep them safe. If you're trying something for the first time, you're trusting the people who are running the business to do what's necessary to make that activity safe for you.
1: So what's a better way to do this? I mean, if you don't like the idea of the waivers... What could be a better, more fair way to have these sports allowed to operate?
0: Well, other provinces in Canada have like legislation in place that allow these these companies to operate and allow these sports to operate, but don't allow the companies to contract out of their own negligence. Um, and I think we need legislation like that in British Columbia, where, it's, you know, if you get injured because you did something stupid and it's your own fault, then fine. You you know, you're on the hook for your own damages. But if the company does something that's negligent that injures you, the waiver shouldn't apply.
1: Right. So if like in, on the, the example you cite, if if an employee of a ski hill says, yeah, go ahead and, and try this dangerous run or an employee of a zip line. Says, go ahead. The ways the ways clear. You can go. You can go barreling down this zip line. Even though there's somebody stuck in the middle of the zip line, and you get a catastrophic crash, that's obviously not the the person's fault that gets injured.
0: Exactly. But if yeah. you, you know, you decide your first time out that you're skiing that you're going to try the the you know, black diamond run anyway, because you feeling extra confident that day, maybe you've had too much to drink, I don't know. Um, You know, that should be on you, you made your own decision. And I I think that's a fair way of doing it, because it protects the companies against the foolishness of people who want to engage in dangerous activities. But it also protects people against the potential for harm that comes from the companies not being run or operated correctly or safely.
1: But but isn't there also the risk, though, that you might have someone who decides to do something stupid on their own maybe they overestimate their own abilities to say let's do let's say do an extreme jump at a at an extreme uh, terrain park at a ski hill and they think well i think i can do it but maybe i can't is that that person's fault or is that you know you could potentially argue well they put this they put this jump on the hill and i should reasonably be expected i can jump over this but i can't
0: it depends. And that's, yeah. those are the types of cases where the courts are going to have to sort it out. It's not going to be a perfect system, but what we have right now is obviously imperfect. It's completely unfair and it's unjust to allow companies to be to be negligent, to let people get hurt and then to say, well, you signed a document so you can't sue us. Too bad for you. It gives the companies way too much power in this interaction and, and splitting it to make it fair is the right thing to do.
1: Okay so in other provinces you were saying that in other jurisdictions you you would even if you sign a waiver if there's negligence involved on the other party you could still sue for damages
0: Yes, you can't contract out okay. of the company's negligence. Um, there's statutes in place in other provinces that would, would prohibit that, and we need to enact similar legislation in B.C.
1: Okay, there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be much of a public uproar over something like this. I mean, this is one of the things I found interesting this week about the, the discussion on this topic is that I, I think it's the first time I've heard any kind of public public questioning of, of whether the laws in British Columbia are, are fair or adequate. Why hasn't there been more of a backlash on this? I mean, isn't that maybe an indication that that the general public realizes themselves that these I are think, da- these are dangerous sports and if they're going to participate in them, they participate in their own risk.
0: I think there's two reasons for it. The first reason is, yes, a lot of people recognize, you know, you're assuming a high level of risk when you're engaging in anything dangerous and you have to calculate that into, into the decision making if you're going to, you know, make a ski jump or jump out of an airplane or, or zip line. But I also think the other reason for it is in lots of these cases where there are lawsuits in relation to these um, uh, to these waivers, companies will settle. Uh, people will file a lawsuit. The company will settle for a portion of of what's being claimed and the case will never make it to court. So the public doesn't hear about it. Um, and it's good that it's getting attention because it's going to hopefully spur some change to try and make the system more fair.
1: Kyla, thanks for coming on with your perspective on it. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Kyla Lee, she's a criminal defense lawyer with Acumen Law. All right, welcome back to the show. Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. Let's talk about that latest scoop from global investigative reporter Sam Cooper. This is one that looked into some activities in the law office of Richmond Liberal MP Joe Pescasolido and a bear trust deal that went through that law office involving a an alleged Chinese drug boss. Ooh, yeah, Pesco Solito on the hot seat over this one. Joining me now to talk about it is Richard Zussman, Global News Online Legislative Reporter. Hey, Richard. Hey, Smitty. Okay, this uh, Liberal MP was on the air with Simi Sarah this morning. She's filling in on the John McComb Show. <laughs> And a bear trust deal, this is one of the things that, that is kind of a red flag that critics are saying. This is something that's also been targeted by the provincial government. We hear a lot of this from Attorney General David Eby, that these bear trust deals are are bad because it allows um, it allows clients involved in the case to, to hide their identity, right? Yeah, and, and I think timing is really important in
4: this story as well. So the story that Sam wrote here dates back to a 2011 investigation. At that point, uh, the MP was not in politics. Uh, Joe uh, pesca Salito had a law firm with his name on it. He was a lawyer. As he describes it, it's an amalgam of different lawyers Uh, And in 2011, there wasn't a whole lot known about bear trust loopholes, about exploitation. There wasn't a lot being done about money laundering at the time. And then uh, Pesca Salido decided that he was going to enter politics in 2015. He stopped practicing law. Now he's running for re-election and he's been asked, uh, questions about this now so timing's important but yeah. you brought up the bear trust loophole smitty so that's a huge part in all of this that as you mentioned is a way in which uh individuals can hide their identity around what they actually own by using uh, numbered companies or other ways to hide uh who's buying these properties so that if it, they are proceeds of crime being used it's very hard to track that and Peter German who's written two reports now into money laundering pointed this out as a major major issue and something the federal government should be heavily focused on stopping because he says that lawyers themselves should have a responsibility to report if they feel like they're suspicious transactions. But there also should be uh, presence from the federal government to crack down on it. So this weighs in on all sorts of issues around closing these loopholes. The B.C. government is working on it now, uh, but they haven't yet got to the bottom of the problem and they need the federal government's help.
1: OK, let's have a little listen here, Richard, to Joe pesca this Liberal MP who was on the air this morning with Simi Sarah, and She asked him about this bear trust. And here's what he said.
0: Did you ever, though, undertake any kind of uh, bear trust land deal yourself? no i have not um,
5: i have never undertaken that uh, um i've never been uh, involved uh, in such a transaction uh, uh, at pesky sales associates or, or anywhere else
1: okay okay uh i think he's basically saying richard that if this this bear trust deal went through his law office it probably another lawyer involved wasn't him
4: right yeah and he did say it was another lawyer and there has been other lawyers who have been involved uh in investigations by the bc law society but pesca slito says that's separate from him i think people are probably screaming at the radio when they listen to him and say how did you not know because it's your name on the office wall right but i think part of it is there are a number of lawyers uh this is not against the law you know, right. Using bear trust is not against the law now. It wasn't against the law in 2011. And so this transaction, uh, as seen by a lawyer, if it goes across your desk, would not be seen as suspicious. When it starts looking suspicious is when you start seeing the people involved here. And, you know, this is all... You know, Sam has been doing a lot of work on this, especially around a guy named Kwok Chung Tam, who is an alleged heavyweight in the Big Circle Boys, a powerful mainline China-based drug cartel. And now when you start putting the dots together, then you have a story. And I think Pesca Salido is now answering these questions, but at the time he just would not have known, I think. But I think there still needs to be more work done by lawyers across this province on ensuring that if they see suspicious activity, it is reported because money laundering has had a deep and profound impact on our economy.
1: Yeah, right. I think as well said, Richard. And there's so many loopholes here. I mean, you got the Bear Trust loophole, and also. There's also the question of whether lawyers should have more reporting requirements if something is flagged or is a suspicious transaction that this should be reported to Fintrack, which is the federal agency responsible for money laundering. And Simi, Sarah asked that Liberal MP about that this morning, and here's what he said.
0: Given what happened here in this particular case, then with another lawyer at your firm, do you think that lawyers should have to report to Fintrack? that's a
5: conversation that uh, I'll allow for uh, for the law society and lawyers. I, I think as a society, particularly in British Columbia, we need to work together to to fight the uh, the problem of money laundering. Uh, and I think we're, we're on the right track. We still have quite a bit to go, but I think um, um, Solicitor General David Eby has been doing a good job
6: there.
1: Joe's Pesco-Solito, the Liberal MP, in conversation with Simi this morning. Just got a minute left here, Richard. Of course, these are a lot of questions that will probably be front and center in a public inquiry into money laundering in British Columbia. When do we expect that public inquiry to get up and running? Yeah, so the work's underway now, somebody to lay the groundwork for it, but don't expect people to be
4: called in terms of testimony until potentially late next year, even the year after. This whole thing is about a two-year window. So let's say late next year we'll start seeing some testimony as uh, the uh, Commissioner Cullen starts getting the work done to build the inquiry. But it's going to be really interesting to see how far back they go, who they call, and whether you know politicians continue to be um, questioned in all of this. I think locally people want to hear from Rich Coleman. I wonder if it goes beyond that in terms of who gets called before the uh, inquiry.
1: Do you think the liberals are kind of shaking in their boots on this? I mean, E.B. has been kind of swinging a political wrecking ball on this. I think he's inflicted a lot of damage on the liberals on this money laundering file. Maybe the new Democrats hoping this public inquiry will inflict even more. Yeah, the liberals would
4: love for this thing to go away,
1: and the timing is suspicious. I know you and I both talked about
4: that when the public inquiry was announced, with the fact the findings will come out months before the next provincial election. But you know, I think there's a reason to be worried. But the public inquiry, as Rich Coleman said at the time, will tell all, and I think at that point we'll be able to judge uh, the full scope of all this.
1: Richard, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Richard Zussman, he's a Global News online legislative reporter. Let's just talk about the turmoil going on in Hong Kong now. Police fired tear gas and rubber bullets at protesters in Hong Kong today, hours after tens of thousands of mostly young people surrounded the city's government headquarters. And they postponed debate over a controversial bill that would allow fugitives to be extradited to china let's uh, get the latest on this now with joanna chu managing editor of star vancouver she's a former correspondent based in china and hong kong joanna welcome back to the show
7: yeah thanks for having me on
1: joanna these are really uh, remarkable mm-hmm. tv images we're seeing from hong kong on on the streets today reminiscent of some protests we saw a few years ago back in 2014 mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on what we're seeing in the city today
7: so, in 2014, I was still in Hong Kong working for Economist of China Morning Post, and I covered the Umbrella Movement protest. It was called Umbrella Movement because after police started using a lot of tear gas on protesters, they brought umbrellas um, to the occupations of the city streets to protect themselves. That movement was eventually quashed. A lot of the leaders are in jail or, or had served jail sentences, and now this is. A lot of Hong Kongers think that this is the last battle for them, for them to stand their ground, because they feel if they lose this and the extradition law passes, then it it will silence um, any further dissent, free speech, because people are afraid, of course, um, knowing that um, the rule of law in China is not um, up to international standards, that things they say could be construed as a crime, and they could actually people in Hong Kong, including foreigners or anyone who just stepped split in the territory, could get sent to China and to face the courts in China. Um, and with, um, I think, Canada's paying attention particularly because we still have um, Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spiber in Chinese jails. Mm-hmm. In um, a, a lot of experts think this is arbitrary political retaliation for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou being arrested in Vancouver.
1: Right. You, you touched, Joanna, on that controversial bill that would allow fugitives in hong kong to be extradited to mainland china why is this causing so much turmoil there in hong kong
7: well people are scared they've been scared for a long time and um i'll be upfront i was born in hong kong my family was one of the many um people hong kongers who decided actually to emigrate away from the city because so many people in hong kong were, were afraid of exactly things like this um where they felt that um Hong Kongers' rights and freedoms will be eroded. And we've seen actually Hong Kong publishers, they've been mysteriously disappeared and ended up in Chinese jails. So I think from like newcomers' situation, it might seem like, why are there like hundreds of thousands on the streets? Why are they so motivated? Um, they've seen kind of like a drip drop of concerning things. Um, so they feel that this might be a last straw um, if yeah. the extradition law passes. There might be. The threat uh, in their heads, whether it's true or not, of some serious consequences where someone in Hong Kong could be sent to China uh, to face the courts there. Of course, the government, both Hong Kong and Beijing, says it would only be used for serious crimes and not for mm-hmm. political ends. But people are afraid. Like, people don't trust the Chinese Communist Party to live up to its words. Um, we have Canadians, we have other foreigners in Chinese jails right now. Um, no access to a lawyer, um, being interrogated. So people have, I think it's a pretty reasonable fears, and that's what's mobilizing all these young people, um, people of all ages to spend all night and facing tear gas and rubber bullets. Um, Seventy-two two are injured, two are in serious conditions. So some people are, are risking their lives probably for, to fight against this in Hong Kong.
1: Speaking to Joanna Chu, managing editor of Star Vancouver, about the turmoil in Hong Kong today, what prompted the Hong Kong government, Joanna, to to overhaul uh, this extradition law? Is this be being driven by Beijing, or th- this, is this the Hong Kong government doing what Beijing wants?
7: It's hard to say. Um, a lot of people think that the Hong Kong government um, doesn't have much power to stand up against um, the wishes of Beijing, yeah. and Hong Kong currently doesn't have a full democracy. Um, so the officials aren't kind of elected and fully accountable in that way. Um, they say it was in reaction to making it easier to fight crime. Um, say someone, um, who committed a crime in Taiwan, who's a Chinese citizen, for example, would be, they would want them to be able to face charges.
1: What's your read on these, on the scale of these protests? As you mentioned, there are 72 people were taken to hospital uh, in Hong Kong, could these protests get even bigger?
7: I think um, the reason um, why Hong Kong police acted so quickly is probably because of the 2014 uh, Umbrella Movement protests where yeah. hundreds of thousands of protesters, every day they occupied and pretty much shut down the central business district in Hong Kong. Imagine like the towers and all the commerce that goes through there. They completely paralyzed the streets by um, setting up camps for months. Um, it was part of um, the global Occupy movement idea. Um, I don't think Beijing was really happy about that. Um, I don't think the Hong Kong government was happy about its city being paralyzed. Um, yeah. So police seemed to be more prepared this time. They brought in a lot of riot gear right away, and police were shooting pepper spray using these long range um, pepper spray. Gun, so they could actually fire it from really far away. So we had wow. these images that are quite striking of police kind of like being quite removed from protesters, but with like a big long barrel and shooting right. like a big spray of pepper spray at the crowd. But the a- crowd was also more organized because in Hong Kong, you, there's like a culture of veteran protests. So people yeah. had their umbrellas, they had their cling mask, they have all these tricks to protect themselves against pepper spray. But um, I don't think people were expecting rubber bullets People expect pepper spray at this wow. point, but the bullets was, when I saw that, I was like, wow, this is a lot more serious than it was four yeah. years
1: ago. We just got one minute left here, Joanna. I think people, it's important for people to remember Hong Kong is, is a very, is very different from other Chinese cities. I mean, it was a, a mm-hmm. British colony for a long time before Beijing took over and there's, there's a lot more, there's, there has historically been a lot more freedom in Hong mm-hmm. Kong than, than elsewhere. Is that changing? Do you think now?
7: yeah so 1997 was when um Hong Kong became handed over back to China, and having been in colony for so long, the ideas ideals of freedom and um, rights is very in Hong Kong culture, and people feel like they're they're really passionate about defending their rights. They believe that they should be an international city in accordance with rule of law. And actually, according to the Hanover Agreement, it's supposed to stay independent, semi-independent until 2047. They feel that China has moved in a lot earlier than that.
1: Joanna, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Joanna Chu, managing editor Star Vancouver on the protest scene on the streets of Hong Kong today. 72 people uh, taken to hospital today. The Vancouver School Board has covered up a plaque bearing the name of a controversial figure from history cecil rhodes now this sign was located at a vancouver french immersion elementary school it had been installed there a couple of years ago the school has now decided to cover up the plaque while they discuss uh with the community about if there's any other further action to take Cecil Rhodes. Who is Cecil Rhodes? Well, he was a British mining magnate. He was a politician in British colonial Africa. Have you ever heard of the Rhodes Scholarship? Yeah, that's him. It's uh, the Rhodes Scholarship is funded uh, by his estate. Let's check in now with Jennifer Reddy, Vancouver School Board trustee with One City Vancouver. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. Why is this guy yeah. Cecil Rhodes? I mean, people may have heard of the Rhodes Scholarship, but they probably don't know much more about this about this person. Why is this guy so controversial?
8: Yeah, um, so it was brought to my attention by uh, parents who actually um, have children at Le Belang, uh, in Vancouver. So as a trustee, it's my job to listen to community feedback and the experiences of children and youth and families. So I found out actually uh, from them and through an article in the paper that... Um, This sign still bared his name in the playground, and that made uh, several people uncomfortable with the name and therefore the request to to take it down and to really have a conversation about how we want to educate um, our community in the process of doing so.
1: Do you think that it should be taken down permanently?
8: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as you said, Cecil Rhodes, I, I mean, he is known for systemic, uh, racism. And so I think that the legacy that, uh, he leaves behind, uh, has really no place in an educational setting, um, such as a, a playground of an elementary school. And so we're really values oriented. Um, and I'm really values oriented as an educational leader and there's children, um, that go to school there. So I don't think that, um, that's the right place for it.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was a big believer in like, British imperialism and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, why, why was there a plaque with his name on this school in the first place?
8: Super good question. I've been trying to dig up the records myself. I believe the school was built in 1910, and I've heard from folks in the community that it was um, a part of the, the design of the school um, and then the name of the original school, and that only lasted a couple of years, but that that name was um, part of like the craftsmanship and the architecture of the building, um, and therefore was kept for that reason
1: this this is a guy, a figure from history who has been controversial not just at a, a school in vancouver but around the world i mean in in south africa you know a lot of a lot of black people in south africa don't like this guy and there were calls to take down statues to him and in south africa as well but of course anytime you kind of cover up a statue or, or or take cover up a plaque or take down a statue people start criticizing about whether you're trying to erase erase history we've already seen how the, uh, the first Prime Minister of the country, Sir Johnny Macdonald, a statue to him outside of Victoria City Hall was taken down. We've seen paintings covered up at the BC legislature. What, what do you say to that, to people who say like, okay, yeah, some of these figures are not, uh, got some warts, but do, what do you start, do you start sanitizing history?
8: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, I mean, my intention with this is to have a conversation precisely about this. I think that the process of understanding what place names mean as roads must fall, the hashtag um, that took place the world over in 2015, there are several protests, not just by black communities, but by communities all over the place um, who either identify as black or don't. And I think that, collectively it was an opportunity for people to come together um and so with this uh, instance um for me no it, it isn't about sanitizing history but it's an opportunity to declare what our values are and that if place names do signify values and well-being then then what are we doing as educational leaders to make sure that that is the case in, in our in our city in our schools?
1: okay the uh there was an older building on that site that was called the cecil road school that was that was named after him i mean do you think we should maybe we could honor British Columbians or or someone else other than, I mean, I don't think Cecil Rhodes really means much to many people in in British Columbia. Maybe we could honor someone else at the school.
8: Yeah. I love that conversation. I think that that's exactly what I'm hoping to hear more of. It's like, What do we want to value in the context of an elementary school in that part of the city? Um, Place names should have some uh, recognition to reconciliation, to unceded territories, to all the different people that actually have something to do with with this nation and that land. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right that that conversation is something we should be having. And I hope that that's what ensues.
1: Has anybody have you heard any complaints from anyone about the plaque being covered up? Uh, no,
8: it's been overwhelmingly yeah. positive. I mean, the uh, the parental and community group brought it up, and I think that they've already gained quite a bit of support and have been talking about it, so it just feels like a, a an opportunity to really uh, recognize what they've been bringing forward and, and assist them in doing so.
1: Okay, speaking to Vancouver School Board Trustee Jennifer Reddy, where, where does this go from here now? I mean, the plaque has been covered up, there's consultations going on. What's next? Yeah,
8: so uh, on uh, the 24th of this month, there'll be a board meeting where the board will get a chance to discuss and debate the topic and then make a decision on it. So definitely you're welcome to uh, join us for that on May 24th.
1: May, May 24th.
8: Sorry, June 24th. June, tw-
1: we're June, already 20, in June okay. yeah. I was, I was thinking point, like, wow, yeah. we're going to do this next year? No, 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 June 24th. <laughs> I, I hope
8: not, yeah. Okay. I hope it's June 24th. June so yeah, 24th. that's a board meeting open to the public. All are welcome.
1: Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks, Mike. Have a good afternoon. Okay, thank you. Same to you, Jennifer Reddy. She's a Vancouver School Board trustee talking about that plaque at a Vancouver French Immersion Elementary School. The annual homeless count in the city of Vancouver, the numbers just out in this hour. Let's take a quick look at what the homeless count is. 2,223 people identified As homeless in the city of vancouver report released today this is the highest number of homeless ever recorded in the history of the homeless count which goes back to 2005 this is the highest one ever 2,223 that is up from last year 2,181 last year and it appears to be the fifth straight year that the number of homeless has gone up now the city of vancouver is saying that at least the number is going up more slowly than in the past so the head of the homeless services association is saying the growth in the numbers of homeless are going up slower than they have been in the past, that actions taken by the city and other levels of government are helping, but homelessness in Vancouver at the highest uh, since the homeless count began. Let's check in now with Jeremy Hunka, spokesperson for the Union Gospel Mission, which just just does such great work for, for helping people on the street. Jeremy, thanks for coming on.
5: You bet. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, this, these numbers, when I look at them, seem to be going in the wrong direction. They seem to be going up now again this year. I guess the positive spin on it is maybe not going up as fast as or as largely as they did in the past, but what are your thoughts on this number, 2,223 homeless in Vancouver?
5: I mean, it's difficult to see that many people uh, struggling. To see that number at that high um, is is just really, frankly, difficult to watch, uh, because we know at Union Gospel Mission the human consequences that come with that. Um, Homelessness is such a grim, difficult, sometimes deadly challenge. So to see any increase, however slight, um, is just really difficult to see. It's devastating to those who know people who are on the streets right now.
1: Okay, is this consistent with with your sort of street-level view of the situation? I mean, when, when you were anticipating this number coming out today, did you expect a higher number than last year?
5: So it's we've seen um, consistent um, needs, like our shelter, for example, is, is usually full right to capacity. Um, we still see, even amidst these higher numbers, um, what I would call a glimmer of hope, um, and that is that these temporary, modular, housing units that have been put up, six hundred of those units who are right now housing people who otherwise would be on the streets. Um that, that is having a massive impact. That like if we hadn't had that massive investment and, and put taken that bold action as a city from the you know, with the province um pitching in those funds. Um, we would be talking about an escalation in the crisis um, that would far supersede this. Now, having said that, the numbers are still going in the wrong direction. So yeah. we want to we see, see much more because we know that people who are on the streets live uh, shorter lives and die more often, typically, than those of us who are housed. And I do know from my work at UGM that people, once they have a chance, can turn their lives around, can exit homelessness, and can live very productive, meaningful, fulfilling lives. So we just need to step it up at every level from every level of government and every private person because we've got to own this. This is our city. We don't want suffering. We don't we don't want it to be difficult. We want it to be a safe, healthy city. And with this many people who are struggling, it's it's something that we all need to take responsibility for.
1: Okay. Speaking of Jeremy Hunka Union Gospel mission on the new numbers out in homelessness in the city of Vancouver, 2,223 homeless is the latest city homeless count. That is the fourth straight year that the number has gone up. I correct myself there when I said earlier this fifth straight is taking closer look, closer look at the numbers here right now. Four years in a row that this number has gone up and increased every year. So going in the wrong direction as Jeremy mentioned there. What it, what is driving driving that number going up do you think is it is it people moving into the city is, is it the cost of living in the city jeremy what are your thoughts there
5: it's so complicated because most people who are homeless there's a number of things pushing on them or putting pressure on them however definitely it's affordability that's a major yeah. a major impact here so the vacancy rate on the bottom end like if you're looking for a place for 750 dollars or less per month you there's zero percent vacancy that just doesn't exist Um, More people can't afford homes, um, more people are renting. That means that there's fewer units available and the people on the bottom end of that are being pushed right to the brink of homelessness or being pushed into homelessness. Now, also, um, despite this great, like there's some great moves that have come from the from the provincial government, from the city. Modular housing is just one of those things. Uh, Increased shelter spaces um, is another. Um, But despite all those good things, we are seeing about a thousand people per year falling into homelessness, um, who, who, pre- who previously weren't. So as we are working to get people out of homelessness, more, are, more are falling into it. So we're, right. we're just, people are falling into homelessness faster than we can help pull them out. That's the reality and affordability, the crisis and the vacancy crisis have, have a major impact there. And then you're getting into things like, um, struggles with addiction, uh, yeah. personal grief, Trauma, all these things, uh, and it just can create utter misery for people who are on the street.
1: How, how much of an impact does drug addiction have, mental illness, or or both? I mean, there's perception. Obviously, these are critical, crucial problems for a lot of people on the street. How would you quantify that in terms? Of, like, I think it's a perception that most people on the street are either addicted to drugs, mentally ill, or, or both. Is that is that fair to say?
5: Uh, There is, we do know from Homeless Count information that a large number of people who are homeless um, do have one or both of those struggles. Um, And what we, what I, what I try and let people know is there's often major uh, reasons um, or causes that pull somebody into addiction. Um, I've talked to a homeless man who otherwise was doing great and his family died in a car accident and he was the only one to survive. And because he couldn't handle the grief, he turned to alcohol to numb the pain. And that person struggling with addiction, it did lead him into homelessness. But that, but that addiction had a number of other causes. So it's not a, a personal choice. It's not a personal weakness. Um, this is trauma, grief, um, mental anguish, me- uh, mental illness combined with an affordability and, and vacancy crisis in this whole region. Um, all these things lead to it. Uh, and it's it's hard Um, i know a lot of people who are homeless i also know a lot who have gotten out of it and are doing well now so there is hope but we have to work at it as as a city it's not just on government it's on all of us
1: yeah and that hope for a lot of people comes from the good work that that organizations like your own, Jeremy, do down there at Union Gospel Mission. I have so much profound respect and admiration for the work that you that you guys do down there. When, what would be at the top of your wish list? If you could, what would you think would be like job one to try and make this better? What would you put at the top of your list?
5: Right. So if we had a magic wand, I mean firstly yeah. acknowledging there's no silver bullet. If we had a magic wand, we would just create thousands and thousands of more uh, housing at low, that rent at low rates. So more social housing. We need thousands more of those units. Um, we would also have more modular housing come online um, with support um, for people who are right now homeless. And we would create more for women specifically or women with children because there's a bit of a gap there. Um, then we're talking about mental health supports. We're talking about detox support. So when people are ready to, to, to try and get out of that addiction that they're struggling with, that substance use, um, they don't have to wait a couple weeks for uh, medically supervised detox. Um, there's a number of barriers that stack up, but by far the thing that we would like to see the most is more housing, and the provincial government has stepped up on that and made a huge investment in that. As we're just not seeing these things keep pace with the great need after years and uh, you know after years and years and years um, where we or not enough is being done.
1: Hey, Jeremy, if people want to help out, where can they, can they donate to Union Gospel? They
5: absolutely can. Here's okay. the thing. People always say, oh, the problem is so big, it's so vast, what can I possibly do? The answer is that you can do more than nothing. You can do one thing um, every week to help with homelessness. You can make a donation to an organization like UGM. You can go to UGM.ca to make a donation now or other good organizations that are working hard because there <clears throat> is hope. People do have their lives turning around.
1: Jeremy, thank you for coming on.
5: You bet. Appreciate it.
1: Okay, Jeremy Hunka, he's the spokesperson for the Union Gospel Mission, uh, commenting on the just released Vancouver homeless count: 200, uh, 2,223 uh, homeless in the city. That is up again. It's over. Uh, it's up from last year: two thousand one hundred and eighty-one. It is the fourth straight annual increase in homeless homelessness in the city. Engagement in politics now. There's in, there's certainly a perception out there that young people are less involved in politics these days but is that really the case let's check in now with tobias Wilcheck. he is an instructor in german studies at the university of toronto just wrote a very interesting op-ed on this in the vancouver sun newspaper tobias thanks for coming on
6: thanks for having me mike smith
1: okay um when you take a look at participation rates for young people in politics around, around the world. A lot of people think that young people are kind of tuned out on politics, right? What, what are your thoughts on it?
6: Yeah, I mean, uh, as you can see in my op-ed, uh, that's not the case at all. Uh, in the last election, for example, and uh, with uh, recent movements like Fridays for Future, uh, youth have been getting, getting much more involved in politics, uh, reading more diverse news sources, and uh, realizing that you know there's no other chance to to change anything but to get involved really and um uh the results speak for themselves i mean when you look at for example how many people in the 18 to 24 age cohort voted for the green party for example that was 34% so that's more than a third of that age group voted for the Green Party, and that ended up resulting in the Green Party becoming the second uh, uh, most represented party in the European Parliament for Germany.
1: Okay, when you take a look at Canadian voter turnout trends, uh, young people still at the low end of voter turnout, although it's going up. In the last federal election in Canada, we saw youth participation go up, but compared to mm-hmm. other other age demographics they're still on the, on the low scale right so still a, still kind of a, a relatively low turnout but you think do you think it's getting better in Canada
6: oh yeah absolutely i think this election will definitely be a major change in the turnout i'm pretty confident about that and uh, it was also for the european election i mean this was the biggest turnout in the last 20 years and with the urgency of you know climate crisis people are referring to it as a climate emergency you know some countries have already declared that uh youth are becoming uh very very involved and i think in canada we will see that reflected this year as well
1: what is you mentioned Friday, uh, fridays for future what is that uh fridays for future is a movement that
6: was started it kind of happened simultaneously in many different places but uh a lot of people kind of see Greta Thunberg, a 16-year-old student from Sweden, as a, as, a, as a representative figure of this movement because she started striking every Friday. And so it's often attributed to her, but uh, many, many students around the world, it's now hundreds of thousands are engaging in these strikes. So they basically do not go to school on Fridays to voice their opinion about what politicians
1: are doing in their countries okay don't tell my kids about that one i don't i don't want them i don't, wanna, <laughs> I don't want them cutting well, class on friday It's coming <laughs> you figure okay i mean it certainly is a big hashtag movement on like social media and that kind of thing you mentioned the uh european uh, elections there for the european parliament and and a an, an increasing youth voter turnout there what's been the impact on that on the makeup of uh europe the european parliament and policies uh, that are priority there now
6: Well, there is some fragmentation, you know, uh, as you know, as you might know, their far right has gained some seats also in the parliament. But overall, it is uh, uh, a huge increase in the Green Party, right? So 69 seats in the European Parliament for the Green Party is huge. And uh, uh, that will definitely reflect in uh, the policy changes also for the other parties, right many other parties are now trying to appeal to the young voters because they 're seeing that they are uh, they 're reading all this stuff right and uh, there's no po- there 's no avoiding it anymore basically so uh this is the the change that is occurring right now as we 're speaking
1: okay we got a federal election coming up in Canada in the fall if if you take a look at some of those increase increasing slowly increasing voter turnout and engagement among, among young people I, I guess there's a perception that maybe a lot of young people are tuned out from politics a bit maybe they're too focused on their on their cell phones or they're they're isolated from kind of political mm-hmm. dis- discourse how difficult is it for modern politicians and political parties right now to, to reach these uh youth voters and get messages to them
6: I don't think it's difficult at all. You know, with all these different media outlets, you have Twitter, you have uh, Instagram. There are now politicians even on Instagram. You can follow them if you're interested. They appeal to them, you know, and then you can read more about them. You can follow journalists and uh, media is really making it possible for everyone to get information very easily if they want it. Right. And so that is something that politicians politicians just need to. Use if they want to discuss things with uh, you know young people.
1: Okay, we got a wide open federal election coming up here in Canada. It almost seems like a like a four way race. I mean, you got the Liberals are down, the Conservatives are up a bit, NDP's struggling, Mm -hmm. but the Green, the federal Green Party, coming on under Elizabeth May as well. So it seems like kind of a four way split there. How important do you think uh, critical is a is a youth voting block there in this election in Canada in the fall?
6: Huge, because uh, the massive sway that this can have, especially in a first-past-the-post system, right? And um, although it does not always bode well for the smaller parties, like we saw, for example, in the, I think, 2008 election, where the Green Party received almost one million votes, but only 0.003% of the seats in Parliament, I believe it was. I think it was only Elizabeth May that made it in. Right. Um, uh, but now uh, that is something that youth are also thinking about. And so they are definitely going to be voting based on that and that the, and uh, basically the, the broken promise, uh, on the liberals end, right? Because they wanted to change that. Uh, but also with this whole Fridays for future green new deal, uh, uh, events that are happening yesterday, for example, I was at a green new deal event with uh, David Suzuki and Naomi Klein to very famous Canadians who, uh, uh, and uh, actually with a huge youth attendance also uh, at this event, uh, talking about a Green New Deal and that this will be a major uh, factor in this upcoming election.
1: All right. Something to watch for in the fall for sure. Tobias, thanks for coming on today.
3: Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Have okay. a great day.
1: as Tobias Wilcheck from the University of Toronto.